Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. My father had lived in Tequiti his whole life. So had his parents. He was born there, and now his name was on a sign outside an accountancy firm. He seemed to be always on his way to and from the office in his blue Fiat Tipo. His only passengers, the many lever-arch files sliding around in the back seat. Or he was off to rehearsals for the town plays that he acted in. He lived deeply inside the town, was known to everybody. And perhaps because of this, he seemed to live elsewhere from me. As I got older, we had less and less to say to each other. By the time I was ten, we had stopped speaking to each other much at all. I avoided him, and he seemed to avoid me too. I watched as he made people laugh on the stage, with his hair talcum-powdered grey, playing various comically unhinged old men, a vicar, a murderer, a hapless husband. He also had a forensic knowledge of Tequiti, and this made him even more difficult for me to understand. Why would you bother learning about this place? There was nothing here. But he knew the town from all directions because he was a pilot. From the back seat of his four-seater Cherokee, squashed between my mother and one of my brothers, I would watch him at the controls. And despite myself, when I studied the back of his head, the fat headphones cushioning his ears and a microphone under his chin, a profound trust rose in me. He knew where he was going and exactly how to get there whether we were going as far as Wamaru, where my grandparents lived, or to Kinloch or Raglan, where we would swim. He knew how to fly through storms that threw us sideways, through blanketing fog and bulleting rain. He knew how to do aerobatics, loops, spins, rolls, vertical lines, although I'd only ever seen this from the ground, looking up with horror, wondering if he was shouting swear words inside the cockpit. My trust of his knowledge felt uncomfortably like love, he knew Tequiti's history and geography in detail, and when we were all flying together as a family, he would point things out to us, rivers, lakes, the houses and farms of people we knew. Watching him manoeuvre a landing was especially impressive. There was something triumphant in it, and especially when emerging from difficult flights, something almost maniacal in his focus. He was like Batman, bearing down on a villain in his Batmobile, He'd guide the plane towards the runway, flicking switches and twiddling various knobs, burbling into a radio. At some point, he'd reach a hand up and crank the lever on the ceiling that controlled the plane's nose, the movement a bit like spinning a lasso. The familiar trees and grass stretched up to meet us, and then solid ground was rushing under our wheels. I was always grateful for his calculations and focus at the moment when he returned us to land. There was something magical in how he did it every time. I didn't tell him that, though. 
The curious thing was that my father, for all his fixations on money and a sensible career path, had once played music too, had once been in a band. He would not let us forget this. He had evidence, and his evidence was the washhouse tapes. The washhouse tapes. They insisted that they belonged to a better, more hopeful, more creative, more possible time. And like the tapes themselves, this time would never really go away. The Washhouse Tapes was actually a single battered cassette tape. It was called The Washhouse Tapes because some years after it was made, then lost, then forgotten, it was salvaged from a washhouse. Whose washhouse? No one knew, other than that it was a derelict one. But the origins of the songs on the tape were even more uncertain. These were songs that my father and his best friend, Hutch, had made when they were teenagers with their girlfriends, my mother, Julia, and Jenny, mostly on backing vocals. Why had the songs been written? What had the band wanted to happen? They recorded the songs in the late 60s and early 70s in a cabin at Mokau Beach, a west coast fishing town about one hour's drive from Tequiti. There is a Second World War sea mine mounted on a plinth in the centre of the township because it washed up on Mokau Beach in 1942. At the time of recording, my dad was a young accounting student and ham radio enthusiast, and his friend Hutch was a budding singer-songwriter and writer. Hutch was the one with the good voice. I thought he sounded a bit like Brian Wilson, his voice full and pure. But my father did not have a great singing voice. It was reedy and tuneless, and also held a strange urgency, which seemed to exacerbate the readiness. While Hutch sang tunefully and played guitar, banjo, piano and accordion, Dad would just roar while bashing on a beer crate, slapping his thighs, hitting a coal scuttle with a stick, or making beeping noises on his ham radio set. In the recordings, he sounds like a kid still discovering the magic of recording sounds and being able to play them back to himself afterwards. He reminded me of the actor on the stage in the town shows, unleashed from himself somehow. The songs held echoes of their favourite music at the time. Bob Dylan, the Beach Boys, the Beatles. You could hear it in the harmonies, the chord changes. At the same time, the songs, which had been recorded by bouncing tracks between tape recorders so as to build up layers of sound, were of small-town New Zealand. The lyrics reference places like Ruatoria, Mokau, Otahuhu, Porirua, Hangatiki. But then, every so often, there would be somewhere else, Went on down to Santa Fe, Hutch crooned, or I'm just a punk, at Punk Junction, wherever that was. It's true that many of the songs were meant to be absurd. You could tell this by looking at their titles. Meals on Wheels on Fire, Deaf Monkey, Waiting for My Eggs to Come, Amazing Grapes, Yodeling Nightcart Man, and Let Us Pray, which ridiculed the church services that had to go to his kids, in which they still felt compelled to attend. Dad began repeatedly roaring at the top of his lungs, like a minister who had finally lost it at his congregation. Let us pray! Until the song sputtered out. There were other songs that ended similarly. They just broke up into discordant noise, as if all of the instruments had suddenly disintegrated. But there were one or two songs that were quieter, almost tender, like one called Gartho, which Hutch's girlfriend Jenny sang as she played piano. The song was just about missing someone named Gartho, who I 
thought must have moved away. My parents would have dinner parties and they'd get out the tape. I'd hear the familiar tinny racket, the voices crackling out, the piano with its yellow-sounding keys. I'd retreat to my room while they sat around crying with laughter. Every so often the battered cassette tape would be chewed up by a tape deck and the tangled magnetic spools would have to be teased out and rewound. Hutch and Jenny's daughters hated the precious tape even more than I did and protested vehemently, cruelly, whenever one of our dads put it on. Their oldest daughter, Jessie, once shouted finally, No one wants to hear your music, Dad. While Hutch, now a man in his fifties, with greying ginger hair and aviator spectacles, acquiesced and gently ejected the tape from the machine. Tekuiri, 1964. The Beatles had conquered England and the States, worked their magic across the whole world, and finally made their presence felt down in the heart of the king country. Backed by a hissing tambourine, these were the opening lines of a song called the Tekuiti Underground, which my brother JP wrote in 2011. The song tells the story of two questing musicians, Garth and Pete, and their attempts to create the ultimate pop masterpiece, to set alight the musical landscape of provincial New Zealand in the 1960s. They have an almost romantic first encounter over the jukebox down at the local pub, listening to I Want to Hold Your Hand. Transfixed by the Liverpool sound, Garth and Pete take a couple of acoustic guitars and a reel-to-reel four-track tape machine out to Mokar Beach. They record the songs in a creative frenzy, simultaneously working their way through 48 cans of beer, while the waves smash down outside their cabin. But, of course, the music they make is doomed to obscurity. Perhaps it is too ahead of its time, the men tell each other. And so, with the songs out of their system, they part ways and resign themselves to ordinary lives. Years pass, the cabin at Mokau is swept away in a storm, and eventually both of the men meet their ends. Garth loses his job and gets drunk one night and falls asleep on the main trunk line. Accidents like these had happened to men and boys in Tequiti and in surrounding railway towns. We all knew the stories of traumatised train drivers and the job the police officers had to do the next morning. And Pete, meanwhile, dies as an old man, alone and bankrupt. Then, worst of all, the Beatles break up. Pete's two sons return to Tequiti to clean out their father's flat, and in a corner of his garden shed they find an old cardboard box. Inside, the reel-to-reel four-track tape machine, and inside that, the tape. That's the point at which the song breaks out. Well, the town has changed and the people have gone, but the Tikuiti underground lives on in this song. And then you hear it, a blurt of staticky noise, which I recognise as a few chords of Deaf Monkey from the Washhouse tapes. It's sentimental and kind of funny, in its jointy major key. And perhaps it's an unlikely story. All of the elements of the washhouse tape story are made so much lonelier, stretched into myth. But when I heard the song, I could almost imagine my parents as young people, apprehensive about their futures. In the washhouse tapes, so abrasive in many ways, there was some kind of yearning for other places and other lives. There was also a romanticism of the king country, This place, for my father and his friends, was as potent as Liverpool in the 1960s. Maybe it was something close to what I had felt as I walked up the hill, 
just wanting to be away from the house, imagining Paul McCartney at my side. A need to feel something more than what was there in front of me. And I think I could sense, in a very small way, hardly registering, that yearning as a kid when we played the songs on car trips to Mokau where we would spend our summers. But I wasn't yet able to recognise what it was that I was hearing. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.